2006, October 26th. Today is Lecture 25, Measuring Light, Spectroscopy, which will begin in just a moment. So in our continuing theme of the interaction between matter and light that we began yesterday, where we introduced Kirchhoff's Laws of Spectroscopy. Kirchhoff's Laws of Spectroscopy were empirically determined by Gustav Kirchhoff in the 19th century. He didn't understand why they worked physically, but they were a good description of all the kinds of spectra you get from different kinds of objects. And they were that a hot solid or a hot dense gas or a hot liquid produces a continuous spectrum described by a black body spectrum and it obeys the Stefan-Boltzmann and the, and the Wien law, which were discovered after, after Kirchhoff, of course. A hot, thin gas will produce a bright emission line spectrum. Darkness and colors light at only very specific colors, very specific wavelengths. <coughs> and then if you took a bottle of a cool, low-density gas and viewed a continuous source through that gas, what you would see is the background continuum source but it would be broken up. The spectrum, the continuous rainbow wash of colors would be broken up by dark black lines, like this picture of the sun spectrum here that begins our, our beginning slide. So I would see the continuous spectrum from the hot, dense gas below, but there's an atmosphere on the sun of thinner, cooler gas. As the light passes through that, certain wavelengths are preferentially absorbed, and you get an absorption spectrum. And those three spectra describe all the various possibilities, but it doesn't describe why they work. And we talked a lot about continuous spectra yesterday. Today, our goal is to describe why is it that emission and absorption spectra work the way they do. So the key idea is, is to basically repeat a, a statement I simply made yesterday, and now I'm going to justify it, that every atom, every ion, and every molecule has a unique spectral signature. Why? Because it's actually a reflection of its internal electron orbital structure. Those electrons that buzz around the nucleus, one electron per proton in a neutral atom, are going to arrange themselves in such a way that I can actually see that arrangement by looking at the, at the types of spectral lines, emission lines or absorption lines, produced by that material. We're then going to talk about the process by which we have absorption and emission of photons, which leads us to a discussion of excitation and de-excitation within atoms, rearranging the electronic structure slightly, and then watching that rearranged structure relax is what gives rise to the emission and absorption lines. And then finally, we'll say a little bit about ionization, which is where you actually can eject an electron from an atom, or you can add an, an electron to an atom, although we're really going to deal mostly with the case of ejecting an electron by hitting it with really high energy light. And there's a slight, re I should give a little slight declaimer, there's a slight rearrangement of the notes. I originally had one section come just after the demo. I've moved it forward in front of the demo so we can make certain I have enough padding at the end of class that if the demo goes on, we don't have problems with this. So it, it's not a big deal. You'll notice it when it comes. It's about ionization. I just moved ionization up a bit. We've, we've put together a picture of the atom in which I have a nucleus of protons and neutrons surrounded by a cloud of electrons, and in a neutral atom, I get one electron per proton. Now, the normal picture, sort of the toy Westinghouse atom model that we get, shows the electrons orbiting around the nucleus like planets orbiting around the sun. But nothing could actually be further from the truth. They do orbit around the nucleus, but they don't orbit like planets. They can't have orbits any which way. It turns out that the rules by which atoms work, electrons can only be in very specific discrete orbits. And because these orbits are only special places, we give them a special name. We call them orbitals. 
That distinguishes them from just any kind of kinetic orbit. It's going to be only orbiting in a very specific place. Now, each of these orbitals is going to have a, have a number associated with it that corresponds to the energy that the electron has while it is in that orbital. Now, the electron has to have exactly the energy it needs to occupy that orbital. It can't have a little bit extra. It can't have a little bit less. It's got to have exactly the same amount. Otherwise, it can't be in that orbital. And you can't be halfway in an orbital or partway in an orbital. It's an all or nothing deal. So these really are discrete levels. Discrete meaning they have a very specific state. You're in it or you're not. Now the details of this, why this works, why the spacing of the orbitals is the way they are, is dictated by the rules of quantum mechanics. It's a mathematical way of describing the nature of matter at the scale of the very small, in which the distinction between particles and waves begins to blur together. So a lot of the properties here, the description of them is a, is a bit beyond the scope of this class. It basically is what you would take as a junior physics major is when you'd really get into the details of this. But you can get a good outline of how quantum mechanical rules work. They're kind of weird at first, but then they have their own logic to them that actually is borne out experimentally. It really does work this way. Let's start by taking the simplest atom. I need to go get a prop here. Simplest atom is hydrogen. Hydrogen, as you recall, consists of a single proton in the nucleus surrounded by a single electron, which is orbiting around that nucleus. And in our cartoon, we show the electron as if it's in a circular orbit. Now, this very first orbit, the very lowest orbit that it can be in, as close as the electron can ever get in round numbers to the, to the nucleus, is called the first orbital, and it has a special name. It's called the ground state. And I'm going to assign a number to it, little n, and I'm going to say n is equal to 1 when it's in the ground state. This is the lowest energy orbital. If I wanted the electron to get closer to the proton, I would have to have less energy than the lowest orbital. But the electron can only have the energy of the lowest orbital. You can't have any less. It's weird. It's not, ex not like where gravity works. Gravity doesn't work this way. Gravity, I can make a, a satellite orbit as close to the parent body as I want. That's not true when I'm dealing with electrons orbiting around atoms. It's a special property. It's a property dictated by quantum mechanics. Each additional orbital we call an excited state because it has a higher excited energy than the ground state. And I, not surprisingly, give them numbers too. The first excited state is n equals 2. The second excited state is n equals 3, and so forth, up to infinity. There could be an infinite number of discrete orbital levels, which are different energy steps above this lower ground state. And they come at very precise, specific, exact energies. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if I can draw the atom like this, I can actually give you a slightly different picture. What if I really computed in detail where the electron is when it's in these various different states? I might draw a cartoon like this. This is what we often refer to as a ladder diagram or an energy level diagram, in which energy increases vertically on this, and I've represented each energy level like a line, like a rung on a ladder. So the lowest energy you can possibly have is the ground state. It's not zero. It almost is never zero. It's always some finite energy above zero, and I call that the n equals 1 state of hydrogen. The second excited state is this n equals 2 level here, Notice there are no orbits in between. There's a big gap between the first and second states. Then there's a slightly smaller gap between the second and third state, the second excited state, and so on and so forth, up to n equals 5. 
And in fact, all the levels begin to crowd together until you finally hit the literally the n equals infinity level is actually not an infinite energy. It's actually a finite energy above the ground state energy. I can measure this difference. It's got a various units are not important to us, but there is a maximum energy that I can have in an orbit. If I give it an orbit slightly larger, the electron will literally break free from the atom, at which point it can have any old energy at once because it's no longer bound to the proton. And I call this the continuum because it can have a continuous range of energies. But when it's in the atom, it can only be on one of the rungs of this ladder. Now, that's what it looks like here from, from this ladder diagram. This is just what we call an energy level diagram. How does this work? Why do we have discrete energy levels? Well, the best analogy I can give you is imagine going up a ladder. Right? This is why this is such a useful idea. I can be in the ground state which is above the ground, because the stage here is elevated above the ground. So I'm an electron in my ground state. And I've got a simple atom that contains a second excited state, which is standing up here on this chair. So I can either be on the chair, or I can be on the ground. I can't go below the ground, at least in this little atom I'm making, a model atom where I'm, I'm the electron. But notice also, I can't step halfway up on the chair. Right? What? I can't do it. I can't stand between the rungs of a ladder. I have to either be on the chair or off the chair or passing in between very quickly as a jump. So I can't say, yeah, I'm going to hover about an inch over the chair. That would be a great trick, but I'm not Yoda. I can't do that. I can only jump between steps. So defining the atom as jumps here between the floor and the, and the chair, I've defined a discrete two-level system. I can't stand between it. Atoms are the same way. An electron down here in the ground state, I can give it enough energy, but exactly the amount of energy to reach this state. I give it too little or too much, it's like trying to step halfway between the rungs of a ladder. You're not going to make the step unless you make the whole step. If I overshoot the step, you're not going to make it. You've got to go exactly to the step. The levels are discrete. Well, that's a cartoon picture of what the atom looks like. What does hydrogen actually look like? Well, I can compute this. The n equals 1 state, the hydrogen electron cloud, would look kind of like a fuzzy glowing ball. The nucleus is buried deep inside here, smaller than a pixel on the screen. The n equals 3 state is this funky looking thing. It's this funny looking shape of orbits. The n equals 6 state is this even funnier looking set of orbits over here. These are actual computations using the full formulation of quantum mechanics now to show you what the orbit shapes are. You can see that the orbital gets bigger if you want to think of it as growing in, in concentric circles, that's fine. But it really is a very different state. The electron has got some funny, weird, whizzy orbits. And the reason for these funny, weird, whizzy orbits is the electron is not a little BB with a negative charge. It's a, it is a BB with a negative charge, but it's also a wave with a negative charge. It's a matter wave. And those matter waves interact with each other in funky ways, described by some nasty um, mathematics that came in over here, who's a junior taking quantum mechanics after this class, can tell you all about. It's nasty, but it's calculable, and it's calculable to very high precision. It all works. So let's see what this has at all to do with this whole thing about emission lines and absorption lines. Emission lines and absorption lines were observed empirically in the laboratory before anyone understood them. It wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century, when people began to understand what atomic structure was like, that a man named Niels Bohr came up with basically the picture that I'm going to describe here for hydrogen 
And then using comp more complex calculations nowadays done on supercomputers, you can do this for other atoms. It just gets more complicated because you have more than one electron in play. But hydrogen's as simple as it gets, so we'll start with that. How do we make an emission line? An emission line occurs when an electron in an excited state jumps to a lower energy state. Okay? It goes from a high energy orbital to a low energy orbital. Now, let's say I've got up here in the 3 to 2 state, in the n equals 3 state of hydrogen, and I make the jump down to the n equals 2 level. I've got a high energy state, n equals 3, and a low energy state, n equals 2. The difference in energy is the size of the rung here on the ladder I've drawn. Well, you know, energy can either be created or destroyed. So if I've got high energy to be in the n equals 3 state, and I want to be in the n equals 2 state, I have to give up some energy. How much energy? Exactly the energy difference, E3 minus E2. How do I give it up? I make a photon of exactly that energy and spit it out. Remember that the energy of a photon is directly proportional to its frequency. So if I make a photon with this energy, I'm going to make a photon of a very specific frequency, therefore a very specific color. Now I've drawn the spectrum along the side here. It turns out in hydrogen, this 3 to 2 transition produces a red photon. It's a bright red photon of hydrogen spectrum. Let's go to the next orbital. Let's say I start out up here in the n equals 4 state, and I jump down to the n equals 2 state, skipping the n equals 3 state. I can do that, right? You can go up one step, or you can go up two steps as you're going up and down a pair of stairs or a ladder. The only rule is you can't stop between the steps. You have to go exactly between the levels. So if I go from 4 to 2, it's a big jump. A bigger jump means a bigger energy. And a bigger energy photon is what? Redder or bluer? Bluer. So if I look at the 4 to 2 transition, the 4 to 2 jump, I get a bluer photon up here. It's a bigger energy because it's a bigger jump than the two, th 3 to 2. And I can go up this line. I can go 5 to 2, and I get an even bluer photon because 5 to 2 is a bigger jump. 6 to 2 gives me an even bluer, almost purple photon on this picture because it's a bigger jump. But notice the way the levels start to crowd together. There's a fairly big gap between the 2 and 3 levels, a slightly smaller gap between 3 and 4, an even smaller gap between 4 and 5, smaller gap between 5 and 6. In fact, it's a roughly geometric progression of smaller, smaller, smaller. You're getting closer, but you're never quite getting there. Well, notice that, whoops, notice that same pattern is recapitulated in the spectral lines. A big jump in wavelength between the red line from 3 to 2 to the bluish green line from 4 to 2, a smaller jump between the 4 to 2 and 5 to 2 line, and an even smaller jump between 5 to 2 and 6 to 2. If you look at the proportions here, I didn't just draw this arbitrarily by crushing lines together. I actually used a calculation that makes the steps between these exactly the difference in energy between these photons. So look at what the spectral lines look like. This is the emission line spectrum of hot hydrogen. It is basically recapitulating the actual spacings and energies of the orbits inside the atom. So this spectrum actually allows me to peer inside the atom indirectly to see where the electron orbits are. Because there's no jump that can go between, say, between 4 and 3 to 2, there's going to be no photons in this gap region here between the 4 to 2 and 5 to 2 transition lines. Yes? Can it, does it only go to 2 or can it go to 
Ah, the question from the audience was, can it go just into n2 or can it go into n equals 1? I've tricked you a little, well, not really tricked you a little bit. I've chosen this very carefully. Inside of hydrogen, all the transitions that go from excited states into the n equals 2 first excited state produce visible wavelength lines. They're lines you're going to be able to see here in a few minutes because I brought a hydrogen lamp with me, and that's what those little gratings are going to give you. Any transitions that go into the n equals 1 state have a very, very large jump, right? So there's going to be a really big energy. What's, what, what photon energies are those going to be? they be really blue. They're going to be so blue, they're going to be out in the ultraviolet where the eye can't see. So you actually can. Yes, it's a very good question. I have an entire series of transitions that goes 2 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1. It actually has a name. It's called the Lyman series. What I've shown you is a series discovered and quantified by a guy named Balmer. It's called the Balmer series. There's a series that goes into n equals 3. That's the uh, Passion series. And then there's the Balmer's bracket series and the Funds and the Humphreys. There's all kinds of names. Basically, there was a whole series of years where each spectroscopist would do a new series in hydrogen, either in the ultraviolet or the infrared, and they got to name it. Hydrogen's just different that way. After that, people said, oh, to hell with this. There's so many of these transitions. We're just going to name them for, for the atom and just be done with it. But hydrogen's got special names. So again. Bigger jump, bluer photon, smaller jump, redder photon. And the arrangement of orbitals is exactly reflected in the arrangement of colors in the emission spectrum. Now, question I have left unanswered, of course, is how do I actually get an electron into an excited state and then let it jump into the lowest state? So I've made up a little model atom here. We call it 123 unobtainium. And it's going to start out by looking at a series of transitions in unobtainium. It's a simple three-level atom. The two-to-one transition produces a green photon. And I've got a little spectrum here at the bottom. The three-to-two transition is a big jump, so it produces a light blue photon. And then finally, I can have a three-to-two transition. Because it's a small jump, it will be redder than either of these two, and so it produces a nice red photon. So unobtainium is the simplest atom you can possibly imagine. You can't buy it, but you can basically think it up. It has three emission lines, which exactly reflect the three energy levels, one, two, and three, as drawn here. And I've got my little green nucleus sitting there in the middle. Now, there's a rule in quantum mechanics that says if you leave an atom all by itself, all the electrons will go into the lowest possible energy states and sit there. They love to be in the ground state, and they sit in the ground state. So the question is, how do I end up getting the atom up into one of these excited states so it can de-excite, make the jump from high energy to low energy and emit a photon? And the answer is, I have to put some energy into the atom. I have to smack it somehow. So here's a way we could look at smacking it. I smack it with another atom. I make a jump from 1 to 2, and then it jumps back down and goes 2 to 1. Another atom comes by, hits it, jumps from 1 to 3. And then it might jump down by jumping down to the second level and jump into the first level. Or it might jump up into the third level and then jump straight back down into the first level. OK, that went by kind of quick, so we'll play it again. So I start out, my normal resting ground state is the electron zipping around in the n equals 1 level of an obtainium. I then hit it with various things. I'm going to hit it with another atom. An atom's going to come by and collide, give up some energy, excite it into the n equals 2 level, where it will sit for a while and then drop into n equals 1. Or I can excite it up into n equals 3, and then it can walk down the ladder into the n equals 2 and then n equals 1 state, emitting photons. 
or it can go straight into three and then drop straight back into three and emit a blue photon. Now, of course, a single atom is going to be doing this at a very slow pace, but if I've got a whole jar full of these things and I heat it up, and remember when you have a hot gas, all the atoms are running around real fast and they've got a lot of energy and they bounce into each other, then another unobtainium atom smacking into this unobtainium atom can collisionally excite it into these states, but these states are only temporary. These excited states with the electron in the second or third orbital are temporary, and it spontaneously will jump through a process which was best described by probability, much in the same way that if you've ever played pinball. Which way is the ball going to bounce? Well, there's a probability it's going to bounce left or right when it hits the bumper. I'm not sure if anyone plays pinball in the electronic age anymore, but what the heck. So the, 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 ball will, the electron will literally rattle down, and so on average, getting hit, excited, de-excite, hit, excited, de-excite, sometimes you'll produce the two to, one, two to one line transition. You'll go two to one and back and produce a photon. You're given extra energy by the collision, and then you release that energy by emitting a photon when you de-excite. Um, you can emit the uh, three to one line by making the big jump, or you can emit the red line by making the three to two jump, and then making the two to one jump and making another green photon. And so over time, playing the sort of you know, subatomic pachinko game, you eventually build up the entire spectrum. And that's what happens in excitation. I heat the gas as I make it hot. Remember, it's a hot, thin gas produces an emission line spectrum. It's because of all the collisions that go on inside that hot gas are alternately exciting, and then the atom de-excites by emitting the line photons to give up its excess energy and get itself back in the ground state. And of course, life being unfair, as soon as it gets back in the ground state, something else smacks it and excites it. And so they just sort of do the smack and excite, smack and excite bit, and eventually you build up in the tube, you get the entire emission line spectrum. In this case, I've shown just the visible lines. That's an emission line spectrum. What about an absorption line spectrum? Well, you may remember from yesterday, we took a sample of hydrogen gas, in, metaphorically, looked at a continuum source through that gas, and saw a continuous rainbow wash of color, but it was interrupted by certain black lines. But not just any dark absorption lines. They exactly corresponded to the positions of the emission lines when the hydrogen gas was hot. So there were sort of mirror images of each other. So what's going on there? Well, what's going on there is another way to excite the atom. If I start out in the ground state, or an excited n equals 2 state, I can have a photon come by. The atom can absorb that photon. When you absorb the photon, you rob the photon of all of its energy. Now, if the photon has exactly the amount of energy, neither too little nor too, too much, but exactly the amount of energy to jump from a low orbit to a high orbit, it will be completely absorbed and be removed from the light passing through the gas. Only photons of exactly that energy are allowed. If it has too little energy, it won't be able to make the jump. If it has too much energy, it would overjump. You can't do that. You've got to go exactly. So the probability that you absorb a photon passing by is extremely high if you have exactly the energy necessary to make one jump from one orbit to some other orbit. But any other energy is just going to get ignored and pass on through. So what's going to happen is, let's put our hydrogen in the n equals 2 excited state. And before it can de-excite into n equals 1, a photon comes by of exactly the energy to make the 2 to 3 jump then that will make that 2 to 3 jump, and that light will be removed 
from the light passing through, and so it will be absorbed and appear dark. If I then have a photon with exactly the energy to make the four to two, two to four jump, I'll remove that light, and so on and so forth up the line. So now I have the bright continuum source from the, from the background light source, the, solar, the sun, uh, bright incandescent light, some hot black body producing this nice rainbow wash of color, but only when the photons passing through the bottle of hydrogen gas have exactly the energy to make one of these jumps, no more, no less, I remove that light from the beam and absorb it, it goes into exciting the atoms. And that's what gives you exactly a black line spectrum that again reflects this internal ladder diagram of the electrons around the atom. All the other photons pass by unabsorbed. Take the three to two line here, this line over, if a photon comes through of this energy, just a little bit higher energy than the three to two transition, it would try to make a jump like that, no go. On the red side, a photon there, tries to make the jump, too little energy, doesn't make it, no go. It's gotta be all or nothing, and it's gotta be exactly the right energy. It's the ultimate Goldilocks problem. All right, so how can we do this? Well, let's go back to our atom unobtainium. We've got an electron in the lower state, a yellow photon passes through, that doesn't do anything. Green, oh, I can do green. Green allows me to make the two to one jump, and then I jump back, but spit the green photon out in a random way. Purple, yeah, who needs it? Blue, I can do blue, one to three, bang. I do that, and then I make my jump downward, boom, to two, one, make a red photon, then two to one, make a green photon. But notice I spit them off in random directions. I don't spit them back in the direction they came from. Yeah, one or two times they do that. So you slightly fill in the absorption line. They're not perfectly black. So you do end up photo exciting because you absorb a photon of exactly the energy, you remove it from the beam, and then at some point you're gonna de-excite and you're gonna spit the light out in some random direction. So if I'm taking a cloud of hydrogen gas or unobtainium, and I look at it, look at a bright continuum source through it, and it's thick enough, and I can see the dark absorption line spectrum. What would happen if I went a little bit off axis, so I was no longer looking at the continuum source, but just looking through the cloud of gas? What I would see is a faint ghostly emission line spectrum from these scattered photons that were re-emitted. Yeah, question in the back. Yeah, the question was, why did the purple photon not get absorbed in my little unobtainium model? The answer is because purple represents an energy that does not represent any of the jumps among the three atoms. In a more complicated atom, there might be a purple photon that does, in fact, exactly match, at which point it would make that jump. But there's no match, nothing. Now, that's an interesting, I didn't actually pay her off for this question. This is an interesting lead-in question here. What happens if the photon has a really high energy? What if the photon has so much energy that it can actually break the bond between the electron and the atom? It able to make a jump that jumps right out of the ladder. Well, that process is called ionization. So in fact, the second way to answer your question is what if that purple photon had enough energy to bust one all the way out of the atom completely? That process is called ionization. It's a very specific energy. Above that energy, you bust out. If you take an electron away from an atom, you now have one fewer electron for each proton, so there's one residual positive charge now, which is unbalanced, and you get a positive ion. 
So whenever you have an atom with too many or too few electrons, it's called an ionic form of that atom, just like an isotope was too many or too few neutrons. Now I can also play the game that I could add electrons to an atom and make a negative ion. That is less common in an astrophysical situation, although it does happen. What we're going to concern ourselves mostly is with positive ionization, where I strip electrons successively off the atom. So I could take hydrogen, strip its electron off, and now it's just a proton. Ions differ from their parent neutral atomic forms. If you have all your electrons as an atom, you behave in a certain way chemically. But once you take an electron away, you rearrange the orbital structure. The remaining electrons rearrange themselves into a new ordering of orbitals. And so the spectral line signature changes. It's a distinctive. I can tell oxygen from positively ionized oxygen from two times positively ionized oxygen have very unique spectral signatures, so I can tell them apart. And because they lack electrons, in the case of positively ions, they behave different chemically. An example, helium is two protons and two neutrons in its normal form with two electrons buzzing around it. If I ionize it once, I remove one of those electrons, I get positively ionized helium. Neutral helium is chemically neutral. Positively ionized helium actually can chemically react because now it's going to have the chemical properties which look more like hydrogen than it does like helium. That's just a quick example to throw out there that it really is different. Ionic chemistry is really different stuff. So here's an example of this. Here's our unobtainium. And now that blue photon has just enough energy to kick the electron out completely and I'm left with singly ionized unobtainium. So again, you set the thing in motion. That photon's completely ignored, but this purple photon is just high enough energy to bust the bond. The orbital structure vanishes. The electron, poof, goes away. And I'm left with a positively, single positively ionized nucleus of unobtainium-123. All of this tells us that we've got a way now to fingerprint matter. Hydrogen has a very specific, distinctive spectrum. Other atoms are going to have different arrangements of protons in the nucleus, therefore a different arrangement of electrons in orbit around them. Because the orb electrons each have a negative charge, they interact with each other in very, very complicated ways. And that leads to a different arrangement of orbitals. That arrangement of orbitals is going to be reflected in the emergent spectrum from these things. As you get more and more electrons, the orbital spectrum, the possible range of these ladder diagram, become fearsomely complex. Hydrogen is the simplest one. I can actually do hydrogen in a junior level quantum physics class. Okay, I was at Caltech, so I did it as a sophomore. You can solve it exactly. You can actually write the equations down and do it. Helium, not so easy. But you can do it, but it's really gross. And they had us do it, and I didn't do so good. Beyond helium, go across the river and get yourself a supercomputer. It gets exceedingly complicated really fast. In fact, we have a, a professor in our department, Anil Pradhan, who works on iron. He's been working on iron for more than a decade with the biggest supercomputers in the world. That's how hard it is, but it works. The bottom line, though, is that every single atom and every single ion of an atom has a unique spectral signature. This allows us to tell the individual elements in a material apart by the spectrum that emerges from them if I make a hot gas out of them, say, or absorb light through a cold gas of these things.
Isotopes, curiously, will show exactly the same lines, but they have a slight shift in wavelength because the extra mass in the nucleus due to the extra neutrons, or different mass if you have fewer neutrons in the isotopic form, makes a very slight shift in the electronic structure. The electronic structure slightly rearranges itself, but it actually preserves the relative ladder. So if you had a spectrum of hydrogen and a spectrum of deuterium, the spectrum of deuterium looks exactly like a hydrogen spectrum, just slightly shifted to the blue. I think that's right. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Yes, slightly shifted towards bluer wavelengths, but just a little bit, called isotopic shift. And in fact, hydrogen is the simplest atom with one electron. It has this very simple spectrum. Again, these laboratory spectra were taken with um, a continuous spectrum in the background room, so you kind of see it going on there. Helium has two electrons, so it has a much more complex two-electron orbital structure. And which electron makes the jump depends upon exactly the right conditions. And so you get close space lines and big space lines. Oxygen has eight electrons, has a very complex structure. Neon has 10 electrons. You get this very complex ladder with a lot of red and yellow lines. Iron has 26 electrons. And well, I know people have been working on it, like I said, for 10 years with a supercomputer, and it's still tough. Well. That's just, that's, uh, that's all pictures. Let's actually look at some spectrum. Okay, let's get this in the middle here. Put this right in front of you guys here. In fact, could you plug that in for me? It's right there. Perfect. I'm going to keep my hands away from this. Last time I did this, I shocked myself. Kamen, could you get the side lights off for me, yes. please? Okay. Why don't you all take up your gratings here, just before it came and gets the light. Hold it so that the long way is horizontal. Now, I want you just for practice to look up at these lights here. If you look at them straight through, you don't see much. Look at one of the lights, like, oh, the light on the stage up here. You look at it straight, you don't see much. Now look at it through the side, about like that, literally at about a 25, 30 degree angle, and you'll see a rainbow wash of color come out the side. Everyone see the rainbow wash of color? Okay, let's do this without shocking myself. Yeah, why don't you kick the, the incandescence out there so it's a little darker. Okay, here is an incandescent light. This is a hot tungsten filament. And if you look at this through, you should see a beautiful rainbow wash of color. Now, you'll notice that it's vertically, there's some black horizontal lines. That's because this um, thing's got some blockages in it, so you're actually seeing a shadows of the filament. It's what the blockage is. But you should be able to see a rainbow wash of color from violet, blue, green, yellow, orange, YGBIV, backwards. Zibbi, Oya, something like that. So that's a continuous source. A hot solid produces a continuous spectrum. Now, whoops, this is hydrogen. So I put hydrogen gas inside of a tube. I uh, smash 10,000 volts of electricity through it, making those atoms smack each other. And sure enough, there's the red line, a bright blue-green line, and a deep purple line. Those are the first two excited levels. Now, you can see some other junk in that spectrum, can't you? Can everyone see the lines of hydrogen here? See that other junk? That other junk is there's actually water vapor in the tube, and it's polluting the spectrum. So don't pay attention to the little fine junk. Pay attention to the really bright lines. Now let's make the uh, spectrum a little bit more complicated by adding two electrons. Let's go to helium. Helium is a little bit purer sample. Now you should be able to see a pair of bright red lines, a really bright yellow line, a pair of green, 
and then kind of a greenish line and a deep blue line. Does everyone see those? Okay, that's helium. Add two electrons. Now, oops, neon. Wow, look at that. Extremely complex atomic structure due to having 10 electrons around a nucleus containing 10 protons and 10 neutrons in this case. This is, in fact, exactly what you see if you recognize the color from your typical neon light, like neon beer sign. Okay? If you look at a clear tube neon beer sign and you took one of these things away from you, you could actually see the neon spectrum inside there. Now, the next atom is going to get really complicated, and I didn't do my homework, so I've forgotten how many electrons is in here. This is mercury. Mercury is actually a fairly simple spectrum, a bright, bright green line, a blue line, a yellow line, and some faint red lines. It turns out that mercury, they're so packed together, most of the lines are actually out in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. But these are the bright, visible lines of mercury, like a mercury vapor lamp. So you can tell if a street lamp is a neon lamp or a sodium lamp or a mercury vapor lamp by looking at its spectrum. And then I'm going to try this one here. Hmm, what's going on here? I see the lines of hydrogen again, but I see a lot of brighter lines all crushed together. That's water vapor. That's a water vapor lamp. Of course, the hydrogen is being stripped off of the um, molecule here and producing hydrogen in that process. Mercury, neon, helium, and finally hydrogen. All right, Kim, why don't you give me the lights, please? And uh, if you could unplug that for me, please. Down there. Okay. Alrighty, thank you. Now, uh, if you'd be so kind as to pass your gratings over to this side, to the to your left, so Cayman can pick them up and set them on the table there. We do need to get these back from you. I'd really like to have you take these home because it'd be really fun to go out and play with them sometime. Um, for example, you can learn an awful lot from a spectrum by just looking at it, even a simple spectrum. So for example, I built myself a simple spectrometer using one of these in a long cardboard tube so it was nice and dark. And the first thing I looked at was a fluorescent light. A fluorescent light is, looks like a white light, but in fact, if you look at the spectrum, there's a bright yellow line, a bright green line, and a bright blue line. In fact, inside of a fluorescent light is mercury. The inside of the tube is coated with a phosphor that absorbs ultraviolet light and emits blue, green, and red. And those of you in the computer age, you add RGB, red, green, blue together in equal quantities, what do you get? White. In this case, with a slight bluish tinge. It's a fluorescent light. So you can tell that fluorescent lights work by using mercury. In fact, if you've ever had the misfortune to bust open a fluorescent light, you actually can see little tiny beads of mercury inside of it. That's why they're so toxic. They're nasty, nasty things. Interestingly, if you go out on High Street, I took my spectrograph, I thought this is really cool. I went down High Street one night with my little spectrograph and looked at all the different color neon beer signs and all the bars along High Street. Now, they must have thought I was kind of weird, but I didn't go inside, so, you know, it was okay. What I found was, you know, the green beer signs and yellow beer signs, oh, it's going to be like argon and other elements? No. What I saw was a mercury spectrum. They, basically, all those different color lights is mercury lamps in which they've put a different phosphor in that glows a different color when the UV photons from the ultraviolet mercury lines hit it. So the green neon signs, the blue neon signs, the yellow neon signs, they don't contain any neon at all. They contain mercury and a phosphor. 
to glow in a particular color. The only neon lights are the clear ones that you can see all the way through, the bright orange, those are neon. I also did things like look at street lamps and things like that. In the course of one afternoon with a handheld spectrograph, I figured out the, the mechanism and elements inside of each and every form of public lighting in Columbus. Why? Because I'd memorized, because I happen to know them, because I'm a spectroscopist by trade, as it were, I knew what the lines were. And I had a device to sort the light in those component colors. So without ever touching the light, without ever consulting the web for the manufacturer's website, I can tell you, for example, that manufacturers of low-pressure sodium lamps use neon as an accelerator to get the lamps to light. Why? Because the low-pressure sodium lamp behind my house, when it first turns on, shows a bright neon spectrum that, as the sodium filament heats up, turns over to a sodium spectrum. So I've learned a trade secret with a spectrograph. Well, not much of a trade secret. Spectroscopy is phenomenally powerful. The spectrum of the sun lets me chemically assay the entire thing. Spectroscopy is what makes astronomy astrophysics. And we're going to be using spectroscopy at many, many different times through the course of this class. Since the demo went over, I'll stop at this point and see you all tomorrow. I knew it. I knew I had to move that.